Okay, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8, looking at verses 22 through 39 this evening, title of the sermon, From Terror to Peace, From Bondage to Release. How well does your belief in the unseen touch your actions, intentions, and attitudes in the physical realm? How often does that which you see cause you to fear? How often does that which you cannot see cause you to fear? How often does the Word of God tell us not to fear, not to be overcome with evil, and to rest in an unseen God? Last week, we read, as Jesus said, My mother and my brethren are they which hear the word of God and do it. Spiritual success, rooted in complete confidence that there is a God, and that what this God has promised, He is able also to perform. What if you never had to fear again? What if you could walk through life in peace, rest, joy, and contentment, free from fear? What if this is not only what God desires for you, but it's what God has provided for you? And what if our God was so compassionate that even the weakest among us could find rest and relief from the storms of this life? Today we're going to interact with four different groups of people. First, we're going to react with Jesus' twelve disciples. Second, we're going to interact with a large group of demons. Third, we're going to interact with a multitude in surrounding villages. And fourth, we're going to interact with the man out of whom these demons will be cast. And in each case, we're going to find a God who is deliberate, merciful, and patient, bringing us to a place where we need not fear. And we'll begin in verses 22 and 23 as we pick up in our passage. Luke 8, the Bible tells us this. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he, that would be Jesus, went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. So Jesus enters into a ship. And as he enters into a ship he, to go across the Sea of Galilee, he falls asleep. Now, it would appear from previous accounts that Jesus and his disciples began in Capernaum. Much of Jesus' ministry was in Capernaum, which would be on the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. And they did indeed, indeed need to go to the other side of the lake. The region in which they are going is the region of Gadara. Gadara is on the southeast side of the lake, directly opposite of Capernaum. Now, the Sea of Galilee is approximately 33 miles in circumference. That would mean that to go around in order to get from one side to the others would be at least a two days journey, probably more, something akin to 16 plus 16, 17 miles. 
So instead, they get in a boat and they travel across the lake. Now, this doesn't save them a lot of miles, as traveling across the lake would be about a 13-mile journey. But it would be much faster, easier. Oh, and by the way, Jesus wouldn't have a crowd of people following him. He could rest. He wouldn't have to walk. He could rest. Jesus needed rest. He gets into the boat, and what does he do? He falls asleep. So they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus falls asleep. And while he's sleeping, the Bible says that there's a storm that comes upon the lake. Now, this would not be uncommon around the Sea of Galilee due to its very unique geographical nature. The Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level. 680 feet below sea level. But the surrounding hills can reach a full 2,000 feet above sea level. There are huge and dramatic changes in topography between the sea and the mountains that surround the sea. And this creates an interesting situation. See, because the sea is very low and it in, in itself is very warm and very moist. But you get up that high in the mountains and the air is cool and it is dry. If you've ever been high, if you've ever been at high elevations as you get up higher, the air dries out. I grew up in Colorado, and if we didn't run a humidifier in our house at night, we'd wake up with bloody nose every morning because it's so dry. And that was only on the plains. That wasn't even in the mountains. Because we're at sea level, we were at about, I mean, not, not at sea level, because we're at a mile high, about 6,000 feet actually where we lived, um, you're significantly higher. It's significantly drier up there. And so you've got this cool, dry air in the mountains, and then you've got this very warm, moist air surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Now, these large temperature differences mean that when strong winds would come from the mountains and would drop onto the sea, it would create very violent winds and storms which would literally arise without warning. I mean, there are certain times where you can see a storm on the horizon. You say a storm's coming. You can kind of feel it. You can smell it in the air. It's not the way it would be with these. The winds would come down from the mountains and storms would come without warning very quick and they would have very high waves. And the reason why the waves could get very high on the Sea of Galilee is because it's not a very deep lake. At its deepest point, it's only somewhere around 150 feet. And so because it's not very deep, the winds are able to manipulate the water much easier. If it were deeper, there would be more stability. Uh, that that um, energy from the wind would be able to be absorbed by the depths of that lake. But when it's shallow, there's greater movement. And so with this greater movement comes very treacherous waves. And so... It's, it's, in some ways, it's this perfect storm. No pun intended. The Sea of Galilee is. And small vessels, if they got caught in one of these storms, it would become extremely dangerous, life-threatening for them very, very quickly. So the boat in which Jesus and his disciples find themselves is in one of these storms. The boat is beginning to fill with waters. The waves are on them. The winds are blowing. They have no control. It's not a very big boat. It's filling with water. And the sailors and the passengers are in jeopardy of dying. We continue in verse 24. And they came to him and awoke him, that would be Jesus, saying, Master, Master, we perish Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. We've seen this a couple of times in the book of Luke. The raising of the son of the widow of Nain. Got two verses in the scriptures. 
I mean, this is resurrection from the dead, and it gets two verses here. The winds and the waves are blowing, and Luke kind of just says in passing, and by the way, Jesus woke up, got up, rebuked the wind, it stopped, and they moved on. If you put yourself in that situation, though, this is a pretty dramatic event. This is a big, big deal. In verse 24 here, we hear the disciples say, Master, Master, we perish. In Matthew, it is recorded that they said, Lord, save us, we perish. In Mark, it's recorded that they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Each reflects a little something different, and that's because each book was written to teach something different, right? In Matthew, they cry out for salvation and Jesus provides it. He then asks them why they were so fearful and faithless, implying that they could have just as easily asked him for salvation without the fear, without uh, that fear and have been just fine. They wouldn't have had to have been fearful to ask Jesus to save them from the winds and the waves. Why were you fearful? He asks in Matthew. In the Mark passage, they cry out in desperation, uh, almost perceiving a little bit of apathy on Jesus's part. Jesus, you're down here sleeping. Don't you care that we're going to die? In the manner of their request, we find the element of faithlessness more heavily emphasized in Mark. They're actually questioning Jesus' love and care for them and for himself. In Luke, it would seem that there's very little specifically to teach here. Luke kind of just mentions it in passing, doesn't he? It's kind of like, yeah, they went from one end of the sea to the other. Oh, and by the way, there was this huge storm that arose and Jesus fell asleep and then he woke up and calmed the waves. Moving on. It's very straightforward. It's just just a description of events, including the cry of the disciples, the deliverance of Jesus, and then his questioning of their faith. It's meant to move events along and specifically to to, to provide another link in Luke's chain of themes. And the themes that he's developing right now, the theme throughout the book that he develops is authority and then of faith. He's developing that theme So that doesn't surprise us. But though it's only given in one verse of Scripture, consider, as I mentioned already, the magnitude of this event. The winds are blowing. The sea is raging. The waves are pouring into this little boat. Jesus stands up at their request and he rebukes the weather. Mark records, in in Luke we just see, it, it said that he rebukes the wind. In Mark we have it where Jesus says, peace, be still. And at Jesus' rebuke, the winds and the waves ceased. I mean, and why shouldn't that happen, right? Jesus has healed the sick. Jesus has caused the lame to walk. He's caused the blind to see. He's healed withered hands. He's made lepers whole. He's raised the dead to life. Don't want to forget that one. On this very lake, the very lake that they're going across, he commanded the fish to swim into a net. And they did it. Why then shouldn't he command the winds and the waves to be calm? Jesus then turns his attention to his disciples, however, in verse 25. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. 
At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's beginning to expect more of his disciples. We've seen that already, right? We saw that last week with the parable. He is speaking to his disciples now. He's drawn a line between those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who believe, he's giving them parables and he's giving them the insight into the kingdom of God. Those who don't believe, he says that in hearing they hear not, that in seeing they see not. I'm no longer giving them this information. So he's already drawn this line and now he's starting to push his disciples a little bit. He's, they are the ones who hear. They are the ones who have received. So why shouldn't he push them? Why shouldn't he stretch them a little bit? Why shouldn't he expect something of them? He communicated that to John the Baptist in Luke 7, right? John sends his disciples saying, are you the one that we should expect or do we look for another? And Jesus says, go tell John what you've seen. The lame walk, the, razor, or the, the, the dead are raised to life, and blessed is he Whosoever is not offended in me. Look, John, you need to get past this. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble at me. His disciples, he says, look, where is your faith? How is it that you could not, that you could see all these things, that you could see the lame walk, that you could see the blind made to see, that the deaf could hear, that the withered hands are healed, that the dead are raised to life? How is it that you could see all of these things and yet you're so fearful? At this storm, why is it that you have not linked my power to your circumstances? Why is it that you have not linked my power to your troubles? At the very least, Jesus might be thinking, you could default to faith, try the faith thing first, and then if that doesn't work, then you can start to worry. But they defaulted to fear. Now, ironically, I don't even know if the disciples heard Jesus here. He's asking directly, where is your faith? And they're thinking, what manner of man is this? They're a little distracted right now. He's saying, look, where is your faith? And they're saying, what kind of guy is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They are, they are distracted a little bit at this point. It's like when I come up from my office for lunch from time to time. And I've been working and I'm typing down there and I'm writing a sermon and my wife says, ah, oh, honey, lunch. And I, I've been trying to get better at actually coming up because it, it, it honors her when she's been preparing lunch for me not to let it get cold and to, to be tapping, tapping, tapping down there. I'll be up in a few minutes while her meal is sitting on the table. So I try to get up uh, fairly quickly. But sometimes when I come up, I'm there in body, but not really in mind. I'm eating my sandwich after we've prayed and I'm thinking about the sermon. I'm putting the points together. I'm, it's, it's still rolling around in, in the head. You can hear the wheel squeaking and everything. It's, 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 I'm there, but I'm not there. The disciples were there in body when Jesus asks there in, where is your faith? But I'm not convinced that they were fully there in mind. That they were a little bit distracted because they had other things on their mind like, who is this guy? How is it that he just caused the winds and the waves to cease? And with that, Luke moves on from this amazing event. Just like that, just like the raising of the widow's son in Nain, a boy is brought back to life. These incredible events are over in the course of a simple verse or two. And we move on. Verses 26 and 27. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes which is over against Galilee. 
And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils a long time, and there and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. So they arrive in the country of the Gadarenes. The city of Gadara is actually located, according to archaeologists today, about six miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's not very close to the sea. It was the chief city of the region, and the region, therefore, was called the country of the Gadarenes. Now, we know that the country of the Gadarenes made it all the way to the Dead Sea because when they found the coins in Gadara, when they were digging up all of the fossils and all of the, the, the interesting things, and they found the coins, the coins in Gadara had ships on them, which means that shipping, which means that the sea was an important part of their life and livelihood. And that indicates to us that though the city of Gadara was six miles away from, from Galilee, the Sea of Galilee was important to them. Fishing was important to them. And so very likely, and, and Luke 8 testifies of it, the country of the Gadarenes went all the way to the sea. And so when they got out of the boat, they were indeed in the country of the Gadarenes. And while they were still on the coast, while they were still near the sea of this country, a man met Jesus who had been plagued by demonic possession a long time. The scripture does not tell us how long. But he had been driven out of his mind by the demons that were inside of him so that he wore no clothes. He lived in the caves and the tombs surrounding the rocks or in the rocks in the area surrounding the coast. Now, we have seen Jesus cast out many devils already. We were introduced in Luke 8 verse 1 and 2 to uh, a woman named Mary Magdalene out of whom was cast seven devils. And so we've seen this already. We would expect this to be no different, but it is in part because Jesus has a bit more of a conversation with the demon, with the demons this time than he normally has. Verse 28 and 29, we read this. When he, that would be the demon, saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with loud voice said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God, most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. So this man was given supernatural strength. The people tried to tie him up, and he simply broke them. He broke the bands with which he was tied up. Uh, and the man had unique abilities because of his demonic, the demonic possession over him. Now, the conversation is actually initiated by Jesus. We see at the beginning of verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out. But then in that parenthetical in verse 29, we find out that Jesus first commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So the man runs up to them and Jesus says, unclean spirit, come out. Now, normally that's it, right? Normally, the, Jesus says, come out and the demon comes out. Uh, the, they run up to Jesus and through a man's voice they cry out, what do I have to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high? We've talked about the same phrase, what have I to do with thee, not too long ago in our second Samuel series. The idea of the phrase, what have I to do with thee, is what, what business do you have with me or what business do I have with you? What business do you have getting involved in my business? It implies that the person in question has no right or no authority 
in terms of their action or involvement or interference in a matter. So effectively, the demons are asking to be left alone. And then he makes this statement. I beseech thee, torment me not. Torment me not. So Jesus says, come out of the man. And the demon says, what have I to do with thee, Jesus? What business is this of yours? What business do you have telling me to come out of this man? This is between me and this man. What business is this of yours? And then he asks this interesting request. I beseech thee, torment me not. Now, we don't get a lot of insight in Luke into what this, what's going on here, but we do get insight in Matthew. In Matthew 8.29, the demons say, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And take note of that phrase, before the time. We'll come back to it in a moment. In verse 29, we find that Jesus had commanded the demons to come out of the man immediately. And what we are reading is actually a demonic protest, a respectful appeal for Jesus to reconsider his command. And what's fascinating to me is not just that the demon is asking something of Jesus, but that Jesus is listening. When Jesus says, come out of the man, and the demon starts to protest, Jesus doesn't just like vaporize him or anything. Jesus listens to the demon. He doesn't just say, no, 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 shut your mouth, get out of there. He listens. Verse 30 and 31. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? Isn't that interesting? Instead of saying, Nope, get out of there, he says, What's your name? And he, that would be the demon, says, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. So Jesus actually gets personal with these demons. He asks their name. The demon responds that he is named Legion. There were actually many devils in him working together to destroy and control this man. Then the demons respectfully request that they not be thrown into what he calls the deep. Now the Greek word behind this translation deep is the word from which we derive our English word abyss. It's used nine times in the New Testament. Two times it's translated deep. It's translated deep here and it's translated deep in Romans chapter 10 verse 7. Seven times it's translated bottomless pit. And all seven times it's translated bottomless pit, we find it in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 9, during the fifth trumpet judgment in the end times, the Bible tells us that an, the, that an angel will be given the keys to the abyss, the deep, to the bottomless pit, and he will open it, and out of that bottomless pit will come all manner of evil. The king over these creations will be a demonic being called in the Hebrew Abaddon, called in the Greek Apollyon, both names meaning destruction. The bottomless pit is also a place, according to Revelation chapter 20, where Satan will be bound during the 1,000 years of the millennial reign. He will be bound so that he cannot deceive the nations during those 1,000 years, and he will be bound in the bottomless pit. But our interest 
is in this pit itself. In verse 28, the demon asks not to be tormented, adding the insight from Matthew 8, 29, that he does not want to be tormented before the time. The character of this bottomless pit is described for us in two passages in the New Testament. Second Peter and Jude. We'll not study them in depth, but let's briefly consider them together. In Second Peter, we read this. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. I underline those terms, chains of darkness and reserved unto judgment. And then we read in Jude, verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Now both of these passages speak of angels who are bound in chains awaiting the day of judgment, the time. These angels, this, this group of angels called legion that was inside this man, what they are requesting of Jesus when he says, please don't torment me. And in Matthew 8, we add that concept, please don't torment me before the time. What the demons are saying is there's coming a time when we know we will be judged. And after we're judged, we'll be thrown into the lake of fire. But please don't send me to the place of torment before the time. Second Peter mentioned that they would be cast down into hell. We know the bottomless pit to be a part of that place called hell, where they are in these chains awaiting judgment. Now, as we put all of it together, we understand that there is a place of holding called the bottomless pit or the abyss or the deep, where angels who followed Satan and rebelled against the Lord were cast out of heaven in the early days of their creation are being bound. Now, obviously, not all of them are being bound, right? Because there's some inside people. There's demonically possessed people. So not all of these angels that were cast out of heaven are bound. But there are, and there are many who do indeed walk the earth today. We don't know the qualification for what caused a man to be, or a demon to be bound and what allowed them to be free. Perhaps it is that all of the demons were once allowed to roam free, but as they decide to actively oppose God's created order through possession and influence, they are one by one cast into that pit. Perhaps some ended up there from the beginning because of the nature of their crimes. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us except this, that there are disobedient angels, that there are demons bound right now in a bottomless pit awaiting the day of judgment. And there are others who are free to roam, who are yet going to face the day of judgment, but who can be perhaps cast into that pit and bound in those chains, depending on circumstances. And these demons, legion, believe that when Jesus cast them out, They would not just be cast out of the body and free to roam again, but that Jesus was going to cast them out of the man and into the place of torment, the bottomless pit, to await judgment. And so Legion asks that Jesus would not command them into the chains, but would rather allow them to go free. The demons are asking for mercy. Strange concept, isn't it? The demons are asking for mercy. You know what's even more interesting? Jesus grants him 
that mercy. Verses 32 to 34. And there were, and, excuse me. And there was there and heard of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. And when they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. So the text tells us the demon saw a herd of swine feeding on the mountain, on, on a hill, on a, on a cliff overlooking the, the Sea of Galilee. And they requested that rather than being cast into the abyss, they would be allowed to enter into the swine. Humans are far more valuable than animals, and Jesus consents to their request allowing the demons to enter into this herd of swine. So the demons leave the man, they enter into the swine, and the Bible says that these swine immediately run over a cliff into the Sea of Galilee and were choked, were drowned in the sea. We don't exactly know what happened here. Perhaps it is that when the host body of the demon is killed, he is released and free to wander through the earth again. So in Legion's case, he was cast into the swine so that he could cause those swine to go over the cliff so that they could die so that he'd be free to roam again. We don't know that to be sure, but maybe that's it. Perhaps it is that Jesus' actions were actually not that merciful, that the demons thought they could control the swine, but when Jesus allowed them to go into the swine, the swine actually went crazy. They were not able to be controlled by the demons, and so they killed themselves, and the demons were then ushered into the abyss anyway. It's all speculation because the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know how this works. It's just like we were talking about before the service. We don't really know how the demonic realm operates. And I'm kind of glad of that because I think if we did, we'd probably all die of fright. For all the books, for all the seminars, even entire faith systems that revolve around manipulating, controlling, and otherwise interacting with the demonic realm, the Bible actually has very little to say about it. And if we can be honest with ourselves, it ought to be said that if the Bible has little to say on the matter, then really we ought to have a little, only have a little bit to say on the matter as well. So the keeper of the herd, seeing what happened, perhaps even hearing the conversation between Jesus and the crazy man, fled to the nearest city to tell them what had just happened. We read this in verses 35 and 36. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man, that would be the crazy, formerly crazy man, out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he, that he that was possessed of the devils was healed. So the keepers of the herd, they see the swine die. They flee and they tell the people in the city what has just happened. Obviously they heard the conversation because the people know what's going on a little bit here. People come out to see the events at hand. They find no pigs. Pigs are dead. But what they did find is that formerly crazy, demon-possessed man, no longer crazy or demon-possessed. That man who had no clothes on now has clothes on. That man who was crazy is now sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's in his right mind. And the people were amazed, delighted, overjoyed at the power of God. The crazy man has been uncrazied. That's a good thing. A miracle has just happened on their coasts. Afraid not. They were afraid. It's interesting. After Jesus stilled the winds and the waves, do you remember the word that was used there of the disciples? And he said unto them, where is their faith? And they, 
being afraid, wondered. The disciples were afraid at Jesus' power as well. So they asked the witnesses what happened. They told them that Jesus cast out the demons that suffered them to go into the swine. The people then invited Jesus into the city, right? Wow, a prophet has come to our coasts. Come into the synagogue and teach, please. Rabbi, afraid not. Verse 37. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them. For they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. In their fear, because they didn't have faith, their fear of something new and different, their fear of something they couldn't explain, control, or understand, rather than accept or even inquire, rather than exercise faith, they simply fearfully asked Jesus to leave. They didn't want change. They aren't interested in the trouble. They just want to be left alone. They don't care if they're giving up something good as long as things don't change. But the man who had been healed, well, that's a different story. Verses 38 and 39. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. Let me come with you, he says, Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. The man who had been healed begs Jesus to let him follow him out of the region, but Jesus refuses. It's interesting. Normally when Jesus heals a person, we find several times throughout, throughout the New Testament, he tells them, tell no one what has happened. This time he says, go back and tell everyone what has happened. The people asked Jesus to leave. They didn't want Jesus there. Not explicitly because they rejected his message, but because they didn't want anyone stirring up trouble. They didn't want change. They were afraid. But this man, the former crazy man, he was one of them. He lived in that country. He had family there most likely. He had people that he knew there. And he could go back to them. He could live his life. He could tell others what happened. He could allow his testimony of the familiar and the personal to do its work in the hearts of the people. And so that's exactly what this man did. He stayed, maybe went back to family, maybe went back to friends, got involved in the synagogue again perhaps, and allowed his testimony, his healing, his new life from Christ to be all the proof of his claims that Jesus had healed him marvelously and that he would never be the same. And that's our passage this evening. Three points of application as we close. Point number one. Christ can still the storms of life. Call it what you will. Call it cliche. Call it trite. But for we who are in Christ, call it true. The storms of life are fierce, to be sure. Health. Jobs. Relationships. Time. Circumstance. Young people, the the storms of life have not hit you in full yet. They will one day. They hit everybody. There are times when it seems we will be drowned by the troubles of life. And yet when faced with some degree of the greatest natural powers this world knows, the power of wind and water, power which no man, nation, or civilization has ever been able to conquer, ships still sink, 
Hurricanes still take lives. Water still destroy and erode. Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. He said, peace, be still. And the winds and the waves obeyed. And if we have learned anything from the book of Luke thus far, it is that nothing in or out of this world has authority over Christ. Now this point is not intended to be a sentimental statement of trust Jesus and everything will turn out okay. I wish I was more sentimental. I'm afraid I'm not a very sentimental person. Bad things do happen to good people. God won't calm every storm. God won't solve every problem. A life lived in faith does not guarantee that storms won't arise on your sea. A life lived in faith does not guarantee that every storm will cease as Jesus ceased this storm. A life lived in faith is a life where you are living fully assured that God can still the storms. And so you're not afraid. A life lived in faith is a life that you live where you're not afraid of the storms. Fully assured that if Christ is in your boat, nothing can happen that has not been pre-approved by Him. So when the storms arise, the storm will arise. And you say, wait a minute, God's on my side. Why are storms arising? Maybe the disciples thought that. Wait a minute, Jesus is in the boat. What's the storm doing here? It's not that storms won't arise. The storm is raging. And maybe God has decided not to still your storm. It's going to rage still. God has not promised to still every storm. Though God does still still storms. God has not promised to keep you from the storms. But what you can have in Christ is a life where you don't fear the storms. Whether you're in them or out of them. Whether you're looking forward to them or you're thinking back on them. You don't have to fear. Don't be afraid. Because Christ knows. He knows you. He hears you. He loves you. And He's in control. So in confidence, you ask God to still the storm because you know He can still the storm. But while it rages, don't be afraid. Don't allow your fear of the storms of life, whether one's present or ones that might be in the future, cripple your ability to live and to serve God. Don't allow your fear of the storms of life, things that you're going through or things that you fear you might go through, cripple your willingness to ask God to deliver you in times of need. Don't live in fear. Your inheritance, even in the midst of storms, is peace. Where is your faith? Point number two. It's a question. At what point should Jesus expect more of you? Jesus has begun to expect more of his disciples in Luke 8. They've followed him. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his wonderful works. And he expects them to be hearers and doers. The question is, at what point should Jesus expect more of you. We all sit here this evening in different places in our Christian lives. Some of us aren't even believers yet, some of our young ones. We all have different levels of faith. We all have different levels of trust. We all have different levels of obedience. My question is, 
Is it time to take the next step in your Christian life? Is it time to take the next step? Have you been avoiding growth like that 20-year-old still living in his parents' basement playing video games all day with no job? And you look at him and say, look, it's time that we expect more of you because you're an adult and it's time that you start living like one. See, he's avoiding growing up. He's trying to live the life of a child in a man's body. Are you trying to live the life of a spiritual child, though you ought to be far more mature than you are? Is it time for another step in your spiritual walk? Is it time for you to take the next step of growth? Should Jesus be able to expect more of you than what you are giving? More faith? More time? More effort? More devotion? I don't know if the Holy Spirit has anyone to speak to on this point this evening. It may be that everyone is is doing what the Lord has asked them and we're all in our spots and we're moving forward and that's fine. But maybe there's someone here who just needs to make a choice. That the Lord's been working on you and you know what you need to do. It's just time to grow up spiritually. Where is your faith? Jesus asked them. Before Jesus taught on faith, now Jesus expects faith. If you know your Bible, are you obeying it? If not, why not? Is it time to grow up a little bit? Is it time to take that next step? Young people, is it time to just quit the games and start obeying your parents? Is it time to just quit the games and start doing what you know God wants you to do? Is it time to grow up? Is it time to expect more of yourself spiritually? Is it it time that God is beginning to expect more of you? Third point. Let your words speak of Christ and let your life confirm your words. Jesus sent that healed man back to his own house to show the great things that God had done for him. He will go back to his house and he will say, I've been healed, I've been changed, I've been redeemed. And he will do so because he has. His statement of deliverance is the direct result of being delivered. And no one can refute his claim that he has been delivered because the life that he is living is definitive proof that he has been delivered. He's no longer running around without clothes on, out of his mind, doing crazy things. He is living the life of the man, of a man who has been delivered from his torments. And when he says, I've been delivered, it's obvious he's been delivered because his life proves it, right? That's how this works. If the man ran into his house in the city with no clothes on, and throwing himself against walls saying, I've been delivered, I've been delivered. No one's going to believe him because his lifestyle is not reflecting sanity. But when he comes back to the city and he's in his own mind and he gets a job and he's restored to his family and he says, I've been delivered, they can't say, no, you haven't. Because his life proves it. And are we not called to live that same way? What is the gospel? The gospel declares that you and I are sinners. That because of our sin, we have been separated from a relationship with the God who has created us. The gospel declares that you and I have no power to fix this problem. That the very first time you and I sinned, we fell short of God's glory. And that a righteous God cannot fellowship with those who are unrighteous. And the only payment sufficient is eternal death. Endless separation from God. Every time we might even try to dig out of that pit, that pit's just getting deeper because we're constantly doing wrong. 
The gospel declares that every man, no matter how good or bad in society's eyes, finds himself in the same predicament. That whether he is a murderer or a thief or he's simply been disobedient to his parents, whether he is uh, one of the role models of his community or whether he's sitting in a prison cell, he is guilty before God. And if a man is guilty of one sin, he's guilty of every sin. If you have done even one sin, if you have ever lied, if you've ever disobeyed your parents, if you've ever even taken the cookie from the cookie jar, you've fallen short of the glory of God. You have been separated from God through your sin. You're guilty. But the gospel also declares that because we are all guilty, there's a level playing field for us to be pardoned. See, imagine if you... Were, if I was guilty, but you were not. If you were not guilty and I was, then there would be no hope of me as a guilty person getting to heaven. Because if God let me into heaven, that would be unfair to those who were not guilty. But if we're all guilty, then we're all falling short of the glory of God. And so we all are on the level playing field to be pardoned. And so the gospel tells us that God sent his only begotten son named Jesus Christ to this earth. He was born of a man, but still 100% God, and he lived a sinless life. He was a man who was not guilty. He was a man who had never sinned. He was a man who had never once done anything that was contrary to the will, the word, or the character of God. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God and showed men what God expected of them. But the gospel tells us that he did something far greater than just preach and teach. At the end of his days, Jesus was accused of crimes he did not commit and convicted to one of the most torturous deaths mankind has ever invented. And though he was God, he did not resist. He chose rather to submit himself to death. Though he had done nothing to earn it or deserve it, and though he is God, and so he did not, he had the power to refuse it, He submitted to that death anyway. He went to the cross anyway. But he didn't do it for himself. The Bible says he did it for you. He died to pay your debt. The just died for the unjust. And it pleased the Lord to see his son die. Because in the death of this innocent man was the payment sufficient to cover your sin my sin, and the sin of the entire world. And so the gospel tells us that every sin of every man, past, present, and future, was paid for on that day, that the debt for our sin was transferred from the Father to the Son so that all who the Son would forgive, who the Son would pardon, would receive eternal life. And all who the Son would not pardon would not receive eternal life, would rather suffer eternal death, separation from God for eternity. The gospel then tells us that Jesus was buried in a tomb, but that he didn't stay there. That three days later, he arose from the dead. This resurrection first revealed that God the Father had accepted the sacrifice of God the Son on our behalf. But the resurrection, secondly, secured for us eternal life. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he has the authority to raise us as well. And the gospel tells us that the condition upon which a man would receive this pardon, the condition by which Jesus will either let him have eternal life or will not let him have eternal life is belief alone. Repentance from dead works. 
Hebrews 6.1 says, rejection of anything and everything else that you might possibly be trusting in for your eternal destiny. Anything and everything else that you might be possibly trusting in to earn favor with God. You set it all aside. You reject it. And you put your full faith and trust in the fact that Jesus did for you what you cannot do for yourself. You accept the gospel. And accepting by faith this claim that Jesus' death on the cross paid for your sin. And that his resurrection from the dead, that he's alive today. And because he's alive today, one day all who accept this gift will live with him forever. And the Bible tells us that when a man truly accepts this gift, he passes from death to life. That he has made a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In other words, what happens in the heart of the believer is hardly different than what happened in the life of this demon-possessed man in Luke 8. That man lived, operated, and controlled by unrighteousness, unable to escape, perhaps even unaware of his need. He was a lost outcast, alienated from true life. But then one day, Jesus came and redeemed him from his misery, from his peril, and restored him to life. And then Jesus asked him to go back to those who he had interacted with before, to go back to his own and to tell them what Christ had done. To be a living testimony of that redemption. To tell them that Christ had redeemed him and then to live in a manner that proved it. That is what Christ asked for him on that day. And that is what Christ asks of us today. He asks us to go out into a world and to tell others what Christ has done for us. And then he asks us to allow the redeemed life to prove it. When they asked Jesus to leave, he left. Jesus didn't beat them over the head with truth. Jesus didn't call down fire from heaven and consume them. He departed, but he left a living testimony of his power among the people with the instruction simply to show them what great things God had done for him. And you know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus went into heaven, and before he went into heaven, he said this, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And Jesus sent out his people. Even though he was gone, he left his people behind to be a living testimony of him. And they passed it along to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. And you and I, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we are in that lineage we have been handed the mantle, the responsibility of passing along Christ by proclaiming His redemption and by proving it with our lives. Are you doing that? Do those who know you know that there's a difference? Do those who know you know why there is a difference? It's not that you're a good 
guy, a good girl, a good boy, a good girl. That's not it. The difference is not because you're good. It's not that you're a good guy. It's that you're a redeemed guy. It's not that you're a good girl. It's that you're a redeemed girl. If there's anything in you that is right, if there's anything in you that people see and say there's something in that I like, it's because of Christ. Do they know that? Maybe you can't hand out a gospel tract in your situation. Maybe you will never have the opportunity to open a Bible and lead them through the passages of the gospel. Maybe you will. But you can claim redemption in Christ and prove it with your life. And when you do so, you confirm that message. And that is what Christ has asked us to do. Christ took his disciples from terror on the seas to peace. Maybe you're living in fear this evening. Maybe it's fear of what is. Maybe it's fear of what could come. Maybe it's a a fear of the physical. Maybe it's a fear of the spiritual. Maybe it's a fear of the emotional. Are you living in fear? If you're living in fear, I can't tell you that Christ will still the storm that's raging about you, but I can tell you this. He can. And whether He does or not, You need not fear. He wants to take your fear and replace it with peace. I don't know how long it has been or how obvious you might have been in bondage to the slave master of sin. But if you have moved from that bondage of sin to the release of salvation, are you living it? Are you living it before others? We have moved from terror to peace. We have moved from bondage to release. Thank God for that. Let's live it. Let's pray. Father, you do still the storms and you can still the storms. You are our great God. Don't be afraid. Live the redeemed life. Those are the messages from this evening. Lord, will you help us to live these things out? Pray for the young ones around us in our midst this evening who are not believers, that they would accept Christ as their Savior at a young and appropriate age. That they would understand that deliverance from bondage. Pray for the believers among us that you would help us to live the redeemed life, to go back to those who know us, perhaps who knew us, and to live it. But even more so, Father, help us to live it outside of fear. Because we know that you are in control and you can still the storms in life. And if you haven't stilled the storms in life, we know there's a reason. We know you'll bless your word. We know that you'll bless us as we submit to your word. So we simply pray that we would submit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.